Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston, the editor-at-large at Freight Waves, but I'm also the in-house oil expert. We set up this podcast to talk about oil and diesel as the lifeblood of the trucking industry, and you need to drill for oil to get it out of the ground. That's why we call the podcast Drilling Deep. In a few minutes, we're going to take to the open seas. We're going to be joined by my colleague, Henry Byers. Henry is going to discuss a recent piece he wrote for Freight Waves about the collapse of ocean-going trade and what it means for trucking markets. He'll be here shortly. The monthly report of the International Energy Agency is out, came out on Wednesday, and it devotes several pages to discussing the global market for diesel. There's nothing in there that's shocking, but I thought reviewing a few key points would be valuable for the listeners of Drilling Deep. And one of the things discussed by the IEA is what we were talking about last week here on Drilling Deep, and that's the IMO 2020 rule that requires more stringent sulfur restrictions in the marine fuels that power ships at sea. That means that the traditionally heavy fuel oil products used in the past were a no-go going forward, or a no-no, either way, no-go, no-no. As we noted last week, the refining industry solutions to the new mandate were products that relied heavily on the same molecules used to make diesel, and the IA, and the IEA echoes that. The IEA notes that the first imposition of the rule in 2020 was muted by the early days of the pandemic, but the IEA leaves no doubt it's having an impact now. It writes, quote, after the first COVID wave, seaborne trade recovered as oil and dry bulk exports rebounded, boosting demand for bunker fuel, further supported by strong container shipping. Bunker fuel is another word for the ship that the, the, the fuel that powers ships. And as global diesel demand surpassed pre-pandemic levels, the low sulfur distillate molecule deficit became more apparent. While not entirely a diesel product, the large share of distillate range molecules in 0.5% sulfur marine fuel sets its price at or near diesel levels. But that's just contributing to the overall tightness in diesel worldwide. It's not the only reason. The agency makes some interesting observations otherwise. It notes that middle distillates, including diesel, generally account for about 34% of global oil demand. But in some places, it's a lot higher. Europe, for years, encouraged the use of diesel engines in passenger cars, and as a result, its oil market is about 55% middle distillates, including diesel. So that includes, as I said, not only diesel, but it includes jet fuel and gas oil, which is a product very similar to heating oil. If you take certain products out of the mix that are considered petroleum, like propane and butane, but which aren't considered refined petroleum products, that figure, that 34% figure, rises to about 41 to 42%. That's historic, and it's going to be good more going forward because of IMO 2020. There's a limit, though. As the IEA says, it is practically impossible to achieve more than 45 to 50% yields for middle distillates in a refinery. For the period between 2015 and 2020, everything was good in the diesel market, according to the IEA. The amount of distillate molecules coming out of refining peaked in 2018 by percentage, according to the agency. But as refineries got more complex around the world, that yield started falling. And that has brought on problems. As the IEA wrote, in 2021, for the first time since the diesel crunch in 2007-2008, the call on refinery middle distillate yields was higher than what refiners could actually produce. The IEA expects refiners to try to get as much distillate, including diesel, as out of crude as that they can. But the IEA's model still going forward says the amount of distillate coming out of refineries worldwide, worldwide, quote, 
is not sufficient to fully meet middle distillate demand in 2022 or 2023. The actual shortfall this year might be less than in 2021, but the IEA notes that inventories are so tight that the cushion they provided earlier, in, like in 2021, is gone. And the result is going to be a continuation of extraordinary levels of middle distillate prices. How extraordinary are they? The diesel market went absolutely berserk Wednesday on the CME Commodity Exchange, but it didn't follow through much on Thursday, so let's throw that one day out. What I can tell you is that a barrel of ultra-low sulfur diesel on the CME as of Tuesday was worth about a $60 per barrel plus premium to crude. At the start of the year, it was about $20 per barrel. On the last day of 2019, the last time we didn't have to deal with a pandemic in any shape or form, it was under it was under $20 per barrel. But since then, old refineries have been closed, the construction of new ones have been delayed by the pandemic, and the IMO 2020 rule finally started to kick in. Add that all up, and it's easy to see why the IEA headlined its special section on distillates with this. Few signs of tight diesel and kerosene markets easing. We will pivot now here on Drilling Deep, as we always do. Uh, we went internally this week for a guest. It's my colleague, Henry Byers. Henry is the head of ocean intelligence here at FreightWaves. And Henry wrote a piece for FreightWaves.com last week that created a lot of waves, no pun intended. Uh, U.S. import demand is dropping off a cliff. That was the headline. So, Henry, you didn't, certainly didn't make the, the headline ambiguous. You made, went right to the point, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And um yeah, yeah, like you said, it's created quite a stir, but I'm I'm, I'm certainly willing to to defend, and I, I feel more confident than I ever have been about the the thesis there. All right, now it wasn't just pulled out of thin air. You've got some data in there. So, what are some of the key data points that led you to that conclusion? Sure. So, my my entire really the last two years um, as, with Sonar, I, I've been after really you know what's going on at Origin because when I was director of pricing at a freight forwarder to really meaningfully interpret pricing pressures in the spot market and, and thus the contract market, you really have to understand, you know, what's going on with volumes at origin. Um, you know, obviously capacity is a factor, very much demand driven uh, though. And so what we did is we went out and, and sourced, um, you know, container data in real time at origin. And so what we're seeing right now is when you aggregate all of those origin ports for us imports, um, so the, the rate of change and the, the, the data behind that rate of change, uh, you know, and the timing as to which this is happening uh, it's worth, you know, it's worth signaling in that type of manner because it's, uh, it's, it's a meaningful shift. And to me, it's really the leading indicator um, of, of what's to come. And, and what you quoted pro is primarily the price of a container. Uh, well, that, but, but it was also the, the container volume. So we actually, um, you know, we measure this alongside U.S. Customs as those imports arrive. Um, and you may, you know, the data sources of, of peers, the JOC or Pangeva or Datamine. These guys, you know, measure these volumes as they arrive. We're, we're upstream. We're actually looking at it at origin. So what you're able to see through that is the pressure, the pricing pressures. And, you know, it, spot rates are a confirmation of that data, of, of that data on volumes. Because over the last 18, 24 months, it's really been the demand. It's been the biggest driver of those price increases. You know, capacity, it, getting caught up in congestion has been a factor. But um, we're seeing right now that, you know, this downturn is very much led by a, a decrease in volumes on some key lanes. Now, how much of that is Chinese related and how much do you think might be because of lockdowns there, which obviously will eventually end? Well, it, it's certainly, you know, if um, it's certainly a huge factor. I mean, China's our largest trading partner for containerized import volumes. Uh, uh, undoubtedly, it has a massive impact. However, 
what we saw with the, the lockdowns in Shanghai is that um, a lot of that freight was able to be rerouted through Ningbo. And so the, the container surge that a lot of people are thinking is there from, from demand that may have been pent up from the, the lockdowns, um, you know, the, the port stayed pretty operational. And those volumes actually made their way um, through largely through other ports. Until so until China you know meaningfully gets back online and starts producing like they um, they were you know um, at the end of the year or during 2021 uh, we don't expect to see a, a resurgence of, of any meaningful um, you know levels and, and we just haven't seen it in the data our data is set up for exactly that um, and so you know it's obviously China's having an impact but what we're seeing is, is it's multiple origins it's other por- it's other countries in East Asia it's India now. Um, the only exception is really, you know, Europe to uh, East Coast volume flows. And that's what, producing a lot of what you're seeing in vessel congestion um, there in Savannah, Norfolk and uh, Port of New York, New Jersey. Yeah. So because uh, let's just go back. The, the headline on your piece was U.S. import demand is dropping off a cliff. But is some of this an inability of the Chinese to supply because of their lockdowns? Uh, I think it's it's had a, a, an impact on um, you know these companies. Obviously, I mean, how long can you meaningfully? How long can you wait as a company, you know, manufacturing in China in that region, um, you know, to get your products made? I mean, you know, those inevitably, I think a lot of those orders, um, if they're not able to move, not able to be produced, um, and that they're coinciding at a time with consumer demand where inflation has run rampant, fuel prices are just skyrocketing. I mean, you know, really everything's working against the U.S. consumer. It's happened at a unique time where demand destruction's coinciding simultaneously with an inventory glut, and then you're also having the supply side issues over there. And I think it's just culminating into, um, and I think I think that's largely attributed to why Samsung came out today and announced that they're curtailing orders. We've seen it from Target. This is not; these are three top 100 importers with Walmart being included. They're not alone. They're just the ones that are ahead of the curve and ripping off the bandaid before anybody else. All right. So, where are these data points that you've been relying on? Where do you, where do you go to? Uh, it seems to me if you can do it, others can do it, but you seem to be ahead of the curve. Sure. Um, I think uh, our unique approach with truckload data, um, you know, in a really dynamic, highly fragmented um, industry has, has kind of paved the way for what we're, we're, the same logic applies to what we're doing here in Ocean. Um, so I think that's that's part of it. Um, but, but I mean, you know, the data is, um, you know, it's very much in, in sonar and in, in, it's, it's selling um, like crazy because I mean, people will see it now. You see the correlation with spot rates. You see that you're able to meaningfully predict where those are headed. Um, because if you look about, if you look at those volumes and you're looking, you're seeing that in real time alongside vessel capacity, you're looking at how much freight those carriers are rejecting. Therefore, like outbound tender rejections indicating uh, tightness in the market. Um, you're able to really navigate um, what, what historically has been one of the most opaque things, uh, you know, in, in that industry, which is which is how, you know, spot prices react. And, you know, when I was director of pricing, it was oftentimes a shot in the dark on these these market shifts. So how can you meaningfully arbitrage a type against this type of shift in the market unless you have data to support your claims? Well, now, speaking of pricing, you did in your piece talk about container rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much have they declined? Uh, they've declined significantly to where they're they're only um, just just slightly double digits above uh, on a year over year basis. Um, you know, some of those have decreased from the peak right there. Again, our volumes um, peaked right at the end of September, and almost immediately rates started to adjust. Um, and so, if you're looking at China to the west coast, China to the east coast, uh, from those levels, um, they've really come down um, significantly, 40, 50 percent. Um, and, and in some, it just depends on, you know, what, what, what volumes are moving, um, and, and what carriers you're booking with, obviously. Um, but the average rates have come down significantly to where they're almost back to where they were, 
on a year-over-year basis. And how are containers priced? Uh, containers are priced on a, well, this, these benchmarks are representing a 40-foot, a price for a 40-foot container. Um, so it's really the, the ocean transportation, so, so port to port. So if you're looking at um, the Freitas Baltic Daily Index from China or East Asia to the, the West Coast of North America, it's a basket of ports. So it includes ports like Ganchen, Shanghai, Ho Chi Minh, some, some ports in East Asia. But it, you know, it includes all the major North American West Coast ports. And so it's really the price from, from one of those origin ports um, to the, the, the destination port here in uh, North America on the West Coast. <laughs> And do I assume that the longer the voyage, the longer the the higher the price of the container, simply because you know you you, you need to turn it back. Well, it's fuel certainly a factor, um, but you need, but yeah, I think it's more got to do more with the the, the volume imbalances, like you're mentioning. Uh, you 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 know as well as anybody the relationship with uh, the head haul versus back haul markets. Um, so it has a big uh, a lot to do with it for sure. Uh, because, you know, and and when I was in the industry. Um, you know, there were times where, you know, you'd be, you'd be paying in, in many cases last year, even you're paying upwards of around, um, you know, four to four to five times what you'd be paying on the reverse of that lane. So from, you know, U.S. to China being a lot cheaper. And it, if you look at our trade imbalance with China, um, it certainly reflects that. And it doesn't seem that long ago we had stories that a lot of people had stories about a container shortage, a container squeeze. Do you view that as largely over? Um, it, it's occurring. It, it's, it's sporadic right now. I think in Europe, you're certainly seeing that. I think Shanghai, um, the, if you're looking at some of the major impacts it has had, that's certainly another one. Um, a lot of those imported containers, we have data from Project 44 and the containers that are waiting on the import side there in Shanghai, um, are upwards of 11, 12 days and have been for, you know, since the lockdowns first began. Um, and that, that's, you know, had a tremendous amount of impact on the, the volume, the ability for those containers to get empty on an import basis into the domestic market there in China. And therefore it's just uh, exacerbated a, a, a container balance. And then the record import levels here in the U S I mean, you know, I understand that a lot of people want to point to that and say, you know, volumes ha- are still growing, but in, in my, in my mind, that's, they have what they have grown. Those are, those are done. Um, those are entering the market. What we're looking at is, you know, 30, 45 days out, we're looking at what's coming from overseas not what's already arrived. So when you're looking at like inventories and the container imbalance, you could argue that the U.S. is also contributing that to, to that in a big way. That was my next question. You've got data here on, I mean, you're, you're saying that you, you're, you've got a particular perspective where you've got outgoing volumes that you've seen drop. They haven't shown up yet and import levels dropping. And you're mm-hmm. saying 30 to 45 days until that happens. Yes, and, yeah, because if you look at the average transit time and then you look at the amount of days that vessels on average have been late above what they're posting for their estimated times of departure and arrival, uh, that's what they're that's what the averages are. And how much of this is a result of various retailers and other suppliers of products who just a few weeks ago seems at least a few months ago, maybe weeks, had empty shelves of all sorts of things are now groaning under levels of inventory. Is that really what's kicking back into this? Absolutely. And in, in the, the the continuation of these record import volumes coming into the port with the vessels waiting off the coast of Savannah, New York, um, makes me even more concerned about that. Um, I think you know again, Target, Samsung, these are just this is just the beginning. Um, these are the, the the ones that are kind of leading the the curve and getting ahead of the storm. Um, I think you know there's going to be way more. Uh, you know, a lot of companies reporting the same thing. Um, so it's been a huge factor. Uh, but you could argue that it's been the consumer. 
that has you know driven that, and then before that, you know the the, the stimulus money. So it's one of these things where um, you know consumer demand destruction coupled with the service levels in the ocean industry, with a lot of those that freight uh, arriving late, uh, missing its window. Um, you know, a combination of these, and then the geopolitical risk with the the pandemic ongoing in China, the war between Russia and Ukraine. Inevitably, you know, shippers respond to this by bringing in you know some some buffer levels that would enable them to to you know con- continue to feed you know if consumers are hungry again. And right now, we're just seeing the con- consumers just getting beaten um, across the board right now. Right, and uh, l- let me ask you the um, this is obviously ultimately going to be bad news for some truckers, correct? Well, it's it, it, interestingly enough, John. Um, what we've been studying quite a bit is is the relationship between the two. Uh, we, we knew that in most cases, um, you know, on a surge or a bull market like we've seen, a lot of these goods getting ordered from from China, specifically in East Asia, that that you know the 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 pressures in the market flew, uh, you know, traveled from from China eastward to the U.S. Created you know unprecedented oh. levels of volumes and truckload, unprecedented levels of spot rates. The down cycle, uh, when you look at the inventory levels building and you look at the first volumes to dry up in truckload, it's some of those, you know, to the store shelves. You're, you know, it's retailers saying, you know, we don't need as many, you know, trucks traveling from our DCs to the storefronts. Um, and so now we're looking at that. Those volumes have created really this um, unprecedented decrease in spot rates. And so that, that, that pressure now, in my mind, and what we're studying hard is the relationship of how that travels back west. And so now, if you look at outbound tender volumes, um, especially in the dry van market, which is obviously what a lot of these contain, you know, Chinese uh, containerized goods go into at some point in that process, um, you know, they they've kind of led the market in this case. Now, now retailers are realizing it; they're announcing these, uh, you know, cutting orders, you know, preventing any more inventory f- uh, from coming in, and inevitably, we're seeing dec- you know very very similar declines on a percentage basis that we saw in the chocolate market. And you also talk in your piece, or at least you give it a mention, that this is very good news for one group of people, freight forwarders. How do they benefit from this? Well, you know, if you're looking at freight forwarders in the truckload market, you could you could say are, are, are brokers essentially, right? Um, you know, a lot of the margins that they create for themselves are the pricing imbalances uh, between the the people who have the assets and the people who need you know space on those assets. And so, you know, inevitably, spot rates decreasing where contracts have been signed at record highs. A lot of those contracts can be signed directly with freight forwarders or MBOCCs, um, and inevitably, you know, they they make a lot of money on that that margin. So they, they as spot rates, um, you know, decelerate and start to decline, you know, significantly, contract levels are at um, really at record highs. You know, at the further those go down, until shippers really catch on and start, you know, beating ocean carriers down and MBOCCs to get the contract level rates under control, um, that that the spread, you know, is is quite healthy for them. Oh, good for that. At least somebody benefits from this. And let me that leads me to my next question is for the inflation weary consumer, is all this good news? You know, we've had nothing but bad inflation news, but a drop in demand against a constrained supply chain was seen to be economic one economics one oh one, a form of relief. Is that correct? Do you do you, do you see that? Certainly. I mean, you know, there's a few specific pieces that I want to mention there. I'd say that, you know, we're seeing signs that this this volume, um, you know, this deceleration of volume and a pretty significant and, and the rate at which um, demand is dropping. We, we think that congestion levels will ease significantly. We've seen that on the West Coast already. Um, again, a lot of that's on the East Coast of the U.S. is being you know fed by by volumes from Europe. 
um, you know, if that if that subsides as well, and it'll help from from Asia uh, dropping in volumes, um, will help relieve that. But I think inevitably, what we're seeing in the data is that we we will see ocean container rates drop significantly. But you also got to think about the, the the shippers have just been absolutely hammered the, uh, the last 18, 24 months. And so if you're looking at, you know, what's more important, getting space on a ship or, um, you know, making sure that you're tracking the spot market and, and will they be willing to, um, you know, to, to expose themselves to that risk? Because, you know, what if, what if the Federal Reserve doesn't go as hawkish as many believe? What if they, they implement another stimulus? I mean, from what we've seen with really COVID in 2019, when there really was a freight recession, um, you know, things can change rapidly. Um, so it's one of those things where, you know, you really need to keep an eye on those contract rate levels because shippers have been burned so badly that they've been very, very slow to, to work those contract rates down, even though I do expect that that pressure, they're going to be hungry. I mean, ocean carriers posting uh, pro- more profit than, than m- most of the major tech firms. Um, that, <laughs> that's been made very public. They're well aware and they, their margins, margins have been squeezed and they're, they're going to be hungry to get um, those rates back under control. Right. So we've got some deflationary pressures there, but others, we'll see where the, the, the power, the, the balance of power is in the relationship between the two. Is mm-hmm. the data granular enough that you can see particular areas of strength or weakness in terms of what type of products are going out less than they were before and, what, and which ones are holding up? Um, we, we do have we do have that data. Um, you know, most of what we've been focusing on um, is just looking at it objectively and just container volumes um, and trying to report just more so on, you know, the, the relationship between those volumes and the space on those ships. However, um, you know, when, uh, some areas of note, I'd say, I mean, look at the, the, the companies that are already reporting these levels. I mean, when you look across Target and Walmart and Samsung, these top 100 importers, you know, much like Craig Fuller had said with, with Walmart, the Harvard of trucking, that's, that doesn't just apply to trucking. These are incredibly sophisticated supply chains. The fact that they've been caught so way off, you know, way off guard in these unprecedented times, um, it makes me think that, you know, the retail sector specifically um, and within that, the, the electronic sector, um, with a lot of this moving to working from home environment, um, I think their demand models could have been disrupted in a way where, the overordering and then the service levels and those getting here late potentially after peak season and after the holidays could could also be those bigger ticket items that they hold on to longer and try to sell off. Um, so inevitably, I think, you know, volumes in those sectors could be significantly exposed. Um, and that's what I would, I'd say. One exception to all of this is probably food. Um, I think, you know, what we're facing in, in, in the food industry specifically Um you know, with the, the war between Russia and Ukraine, I think maybe hasn't fully been realized. Um, and, and what we've seen with grocery prices, um, you know, f- what we're seeing from volumes, um, the big uh, food shippers um, remaining quite strong and, you know, demand possibly could, could accelerate in a very short period of time if there starts to be, you know, worries about um, shortages. Let me ask you one last question. Uh, there's been some reports about the Biden administration considering lightening up on some of the Trump administration tariffs against China. Uh, seems to be a lot of you know, pretty firm, distinct sides within the administration about whether to go ahead of that or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's say it does go ahead. Do you mm-hmm. see any significant impact on trade as a result of that? There will be some. I just don't know how honest the economy I don't I think will be already be. We'll be in a technical recession. I think most of uh, the consensus is, is that's what we'll be in here um, upon the next report. And I think that um, economically, 
it, it, it just may not be in a place, we may not be in a place where it may have a huge impact. Uh, it will have some inevitably, um, but also the deteriorating relationship between the U.S. and China. This is something we've been reporting on for, for years, and I think um, it's just continued to accelerate, in my opinion. Um, you know, even though the Biden administration seems a little bit uh, more willing to, to maybe work with China on some fronts um, than, than Trump was when the tariffs were enacted. I think that, you know, uh, from a greater overall, you know, foreign policy perspective, I think um, they're very similar in nature where, um, you know, getting a little bit more confrontational and I think, you know, encouraging companies maybe to flee China and, and move elsewhere um, to, to some places closer back to home and maybe even encouraging them, incentivizing them to come back to the U.S. All right. Well, the piece is entitled U.S. Import Demand is Dropping Off a Cliff. And our guest today here on Drilling Deep has been Henry Byers. He is my colleague, and he is the head of ocean intelligence here at Freightways. Uh, Henry, thanks for joining us and putting a little more meat on the bones of what was already a really good piece. I appreciate it, John. Thanks so much. So we want to thank you for joining us today. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts here at Freightways. You can find us on all the leading podcast platforms. I've been your host this week, as I am every week, John Kingston, and we hope to see you again. Mm-hmm.